Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, listeners, wherever you are, or those of you who will download this uh, onto some device uh, or come on our website, blogtalkradio.com, and listen there. Um, This is Dr. Simon, and I'm going to do another story tonight about psychotherapy, where I put the therapy in quotes because I don't believe it has any uh, medical value, particular direct medical value, um, and I'm not dealing with medical problems. Uh, tonight I want to talk about mental health. And I realized as I was thinking about this, uh, I was trying to come up with an idea to extend this series of uh, shows on, on uh, psychotherapy, uh, which I've been sort of pleased by and I got a nice response to. Um, in all the 50-plus years that I've been working as a psychotherapist and as a psychologist, I don't think I ever listened to, heard about, or partook in a conversation about what might be mental health. Uh, it doesn't exist in a way. It doesn't get talked about. I worked in a clinic. It was a mental health clinic. Um, We send people to mental health counselors. But the only thing that really is the attention of all of the people in this mental health field is something called mental illness. What's wrong with people? Not what might be right. Or if our work with them is successful, will they go from being mentally ill to being mentally healthy? Well, that requires a definition of mental health. And this is not an easy show for me to do conceptually. In fact, it's one of the more fun uh, ideas I've had to do a show, to fool around with the set of ideas involving mental health. Uh, Let me go back to medicine for a second. Medicine itself deals with illness. You go to the doctor for two reasons. One, to stay out of, stay healthy, which really means not falling prey to illness. Our great fear is some dread illness that disables us or kills us. Or you go to the doctor to cure an illness, to help you control or get rid of an illness. That's what medicine is really about. Most doctors, if you ask them, what is a healthy person? The answer comes back, you're a healthy person if you're free of illness. Once I heard a doctor talk about uh, health, physical health. He wasn't talking about mental health, which is a far more difficult topic. He said, when you look at an athlete, a trained athlete, or a young person full of of life and energy, uh, eats well, sleeps well. Um, All the vital signs are excellent. That's health, which means it's more than the absence of illness. It's on a pole at the other side of illness. So you could think about their illness, no illness, and then health. 
What's interesting is that uh, over the years, uh, I've heard very few doctors talk about physically healthy people. In fact, I don't know where I heard this, but somebody said uh, of people, you are healthy until we work you up fully. It was a doctor or an intern. I don't know if it was said for me or something I saw on television or I read. It goes back a lot of years, and my memory is not as sharp as it used to be. And I thought that was very interesting. Uh, if you look hard enough at all the tests, you'll find something that appears to be anomalous or appears to be deviant from whatever the standard is of health or more likely the absence of illness. So something can be found. In my poor field, we talked about illness, and for many years, uh, used the word mental illness, and then it, under the withering criticism of so many, uh, and Thomas Zoss's work, uh, for those of you who don't know Thomas Zoss, he, he died a few years ago. He was really quite an interesting character. Uh, politically, he was a real libertarian. Uh, he believed that, uh, for example, what we do about illicit drugs is a nightmare. If people want to take drugs, uh, they could be warned about the side effects. But if they want to take them, uh, they should take them. I mean, it's their choice. Uh, if somebody wants to really commit suicide, uh, preventing them from committing suicide, he said, is like preventing somebody from leaving their country. Uh, and he wrote a book and came out in 1974 or five. I think I read it for the first time in 1976. And I remember where I was re read, it, read it when I finished it. I was in my, a uh, couple of patients had canceled my private practice. And I was sitting there and reading at the top of my head blowing off called The Myth of Mental Illness. A second book, which I think is even better for those people who want to read about this, the underlying argument about why there can't be anything called mental illness, it's impossible, uh, is the manufacture of madness. It has historical elements. But anyway, what he argued is that if mental illness was a true medical problem, then you'd have to find a true medical cause. Uh, and as of 1976, and even today, no cause, physical cause, has been found. So what you have when you define somebody as mentally ill or mentally disordered is behavior. The way a person acts, talks, thinks, feels, and expresses emotion. That's what you have. And anybody who doesn't believe me, go into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, any edition, particularly now we have five, and read the listings of the so-called symptoms of mental illness. And what you find, exactly that. Uh, let's say with depression, person can't sleep or sleeps too much, has no appetite or overeats, worries excessively, uh, without excessive being defined in terms of any kind of, of uh, precise definition. A uh, person wants to die. A person uh, uh, is always in a bad mood. You go through this. There's nothing medical in this. These are behaviors. And what they are, uh, somebody uh, had written, is the unwanted behaviors. And then, of course, you can ask, who doesn't want them? 
Certainly many of the so-called mental disturbances or illnesses or disorders uh, plague people. They don't understand their own emotions. They often have no idea of where these things come from, like they've been dropped on them uh, uh, like a virus or that would give them a cold or, or, or uh, eating bad food that would give them uh, loose bowels and painful, painful stomach, um, or by others. And a great majority of people who uh, are judged mentally disordered are individuals who may be bothered by their behavior themselves, but they're basically bothering someone else, children who don't behave according to the standards that their parents have set for them, and uh, uh, teachers who uh, have trouble getting some particular kid to learn or sit in his seat. All of these problems are unwanted behaviors Unwanted by someone, either including the person doing the behaving or having nothing to do with what that person feels. It's only the outside agency, society, the, 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 the um, uh, parent, the teacher, uh, the clergyman, uh, relatives, friends. And the second piece of it is not only is it unwanted, but we don't understand it. So we use words like the person flipped or the person broke down or the person um, uh, ha, you know, uh, 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 is crazy. And I thought long and hard a few years ago, what does the word crazy mean? It's a judgment that somebody is doing or saying something that we don't want them to say, we think is not good for them, or it offends us. But we have no explanation of it. Because if we thought we had a motive for it, if we thought we had an explanation, it wouldn't be called mental illness. Somebody goes in and robs a bank. We don't necessarily first say this person is mentally ill or disordered. They don't have a, a, a stealing disorder. We then put that in the legal area, the legal jurisdiction, and we call the individual, if we find them guilty of their behavior, criminal. Now, a lawyer might come along and say they did this because they were mentally ill. But basically, when we understand the motive, when we understand why a person did something that is unwanted behavior, then called uh, uh, something other than mental illness. If we don't understand it, why did this 19-year-old boy overdose on drugs and throw himself off a roof? Uh, why did uh, I was I'm watching the uh, Menendez brothers, uh, the story of uh, now they're the two boys killing their parents. Um, at first, it was thought they were mentally disturbed, mentally ill. And then they thought, well, they got a lot of money and they started spending it. So the motive was the money. And therefore, they were to be treated and tried as criminals. <clears throat> the defense attorney found out that the Menendez brothers were in fact um, sexually molested by their father. And it comes across that that really was happening. Now it becomes an issue of something psychological again. So what they did was out of desperation uh, and did something they didn't want to do because they thought their parents were going to kill them or the father was going to kill them. All of these are very interesting and difficult conundrums to deal with. But 
if I'm right and I take the position, and it's now been, been almost 40 years, I take the position, uh, along with Zas and a number of others, a good number of others, who always remain at the periphery, as I'll explain in a moment, of the field, um, in terms of be, having a definition of mental illness uh, uh, removed from our work or put in quotes, like I did in tonight's show, if you read my, uh, my blurb on it, uh, psychotherapy is in quotes, and mental disorders and illness are in quotes. They're metaphorical disorders. They're make-believe medical disorders. And we use it as if it was medical when it's really not. Uh, um, again, I say my whole field is built on a lie. Uh, one that many, many, many people in the field understand on one level. But you can't earn a living treating metaphorical illnesses. You have to be a real doctor in one way or another. And if you're a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist or a clinical social worker or a clinical nurse, somebody has to be clinical. It has to be medical. And you can't start treatment, especially today, uh, because insurance pays for this more than anything else. Very few people have the wherewithal to pay two or $300 an hour uh, to work with a psychotherapist. Um, uh, so that's the insurance, and the insurance demands a diagnosis. And I've discussed this in my show and in my writings, the problems that this creates. But that's what it requires. So you don't look for mental health in an individual who comes in unhappy and confused and depressed. Uh, you don't look, you look for what's wrong. You look for what's wrong. In fact, there's an interesting joke that I heard many years ago, and it's only funny if you know the field and how the field works. Um, if an individual comes early, chronically early for their sessions, they're suffering from anxiety. If they come chronically late, then they are hostile to authority. But if they come on time, they're obsessive-compulsive. Okay? You can't win in this system. Since we can't find a medical cause for coming early for therapy or late or on time, these are motivated actions or based on circumstance or, or whatever uh, explanation we come up with, which most often we don't, uh, or have difficulty finding, uh, we say there's a, a problem. And almost everything that we do with individuals in my field is, as I say, to get the goods on them. But what are we doing? What we're doing is making a moral judgment, an ethical or moral judgment about behavior that is unwanted by the individual and or their surrounding family or school or society or friends, and at the same time, not really comprehending the source of the behavior. So, I stand on that. Uh, most of the time, if I try to argue this with people or debate this, uh, I get what Zas got, rage. Uh, I once argued this in a staff meeting, 
And the psychiatrist, who was a friend of mine and remained a friend afterwards, uh, threw a pie, a piece of pie at me. Uh, I criticized Freud. I was always critical of the field. Or by then, I was beginning to be very critical of the notion that, that people were really sick. Um, and he, he just lost it. Uh, he paid to clean my shirt. and We remained friendly afterwards. But like most of the psychiatrists I know, very unhappy. Um, deep down, most of the psychiatrists I know, unless they were really corrupt, uh, 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 really had bent themselves out of shape. And I always wondered, did they bend themselves out of shape and that's why they became a psychiatrist? Or in this guy's case, he became a psychiatrist and on some level he knew he was not practicing medicine. He was doing something else. And as the years have gone by, particularly since the 1990s, uh, when the psychiatrists and the drug companies got together uh, 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 on, on you know the basis of their economic resurgence has been pushing of psychological medicines, which aren't medicines, they're just drugs. And I won't get into the dangers of these drugs or the lies that they're not addictive uh, or the fact that uh, in depression, <clears throat> some of the SSRIs work maybe 30% of the time and then you have to add more drugs to it uh, until the person walks around more or less zombified. They're not depressed, but they're not anything any longer. Big problems. For about 30%, it works, and I applaud them. What I don't applaud is the idea that they've bought into a lie. This is a lie. Okay, so what do we then call mental health? If mental illness is behavior that is unwanted and poorly understood, then mental health is behavior that is wanted by the individual or by society and is a set of moral judgments about such behavior, wanted and with motivation that we feel we understand. And this gets into all kinds of interesting problems. When Hitler came to power, a great huge number of, of uh, Germans came forward and adored him and called him Führer and were very active in exterminating six million Jews and three million Poles and two million people with retar who were mentally retarded uh, or gay, two million gypsies. I mean, the slaughter was unending and highly imaginative. From that point of view, these people were mentally healthy because morally they were approved of by their society, uh, in many cases approved of by their families, all of whom agreed that the best way to be, the most moral and best way to be, was to be a Nazi, a member of the party, and get on with making uh, Hitler the most powerful man in the world and Germany an empire that would last for a thousand years. It raises, again, all kinds of moral issues. So when I think about this, I began to realize that I was not dealing with illness as a psychotherapist, within quotes, that my work 
ultimately uh, took on twinges of psychoanalysis, pieces of psychoanalysis, in that, to me, it, it was the psychoanalytic framework uh, without cult, and I'll talk about that in a second, uh, that means you establish what I keep calling in many of my shows and in what I talk about this, a kind of a democratic, supportive, non-judgmental attitude towards individuals and forms a relationship that is open, as honest as often relationships are capable of being, and at the same time allows an individual to intellectually see him or herself from other vantage points other than the vantage point of being uh, a part of a family that demands that they be a certain way, that punishes any deviance and uses the endless labels, moral labels or psychological labels. You do this, you're sick. You don't do well in school, you're stupid. Uh, uh, by the way, the, the interesting, the word genius when somebody does really well academically, when they can solve math problems up and down the line, uh, when they come up with scientific theories, uh, we call them geniuses, which is a wonderful label uh, it, it, with all kinds of moral implications. But what it says is, boy, I admire that behavior, but I have no idea how they do it. And the fact is we're ignorant. I once had a lovely discussion with a friend of mine that I taught with for many years at uh, my college, uh, and I said, how does somebody come up with these gorgeous melodies and these symphonies? Because I so admire anybody who could write music that way. He says, well, it's easy. You think in words, they think in music. Oh. Okay. They're not geniuses. Uh, as the years have gone by, it's not only that people, there are people who could think in music, but they sort of have a courage that says, I'm going to speak out in my music, and I'm going to say and do things musically uh, that only I can say, built on other composers uh, on the past, on frameworks that people will understand. Otherwise, it's just, uh, you know, it goes off into the woods, and you can say, boy, is that crazy music? doesn't have any particular value for me. And much of modern music uh, in the 20th century, uh, which is atonal, doesn't have melody, uh, and really gets have to struggle to get used to it, although now I find many of it, so much of it refreshing and, and magnificent because there really is a structure and there really is a, a kind of a story being told, but not the traditional, not Beethoven and not, you know, the stuff that has worked its way into Broadway and, and Tin Pan Alley and songs that are melodic, that follow a certain particular kind of uh, musical language. Um, so that was all crazy. There have been many artists over the years. Well, Freud was crazy, according to many of his contemporaries. Uh, and then I wanted to talk about this for a second. And then he became the leader of a cult. Because psychoanalytic Freudian psychoanalysis uh, was, was uh, he was worshipped like a cult leader. Uh, and anybody who didn't follow Freud's ideas was thrown out of the psychoanalytic framework and told they better get themselves analyzed because there's something wrong with them. They're crazy. Uh, and then uh, Alfred Adler came along and Karen Horney came along. And each of them became worshipped 
Um, and if you went into New York, especially when I was coming of age and in graduate school in the late 60s and 70s, uh, these were camps. These were like cult camps. Uh, individuals from one camp uh, wouldn't talk to individuals from the next camp. It was really a kind of an intellectual war that went on um, in which you were a Freudian or Hornian or Adlerian or Rogerian or something that, that but in all of these, regardless, um, to me, it was the relationship that was important. And that, to me, a relationship that's open and, as I always say, democratically structured, allows individuals uh, to see life in another way and make choices that may very well make them happier because somehow I do believe that if people who have a, can experience joy uh, are more uh, mentally healthy, then, again, it ha what does it have to do with health? Uh, uh, you know, but this is what the metaphor is. So I'll put health there in quotes because it's metaphorical health, but joy. And whenever my patients, the people I've worked with, particularly over the years, I've had patients I've worked with, individuals I've worked with for, for long periods of time, um, in which I learned an awful lot about myself as well as them, uh, where it was mutual, respectful, that we all got used to seeing each other, and, and, and something really, to me, healthy came out of it. Uh, and... Uh, one aspect of that was they could feel joy. One as another aspect of my idea of mental health is an individual who recognizes that he or she really can't live without other people. Uh, there was a book in the Times this week that real happiness comes from being with other people. And of course, like so much of the popular books, it overstates the case because I think that being with other people is essential, particularly if you like them, they like you, you respect them, and they respect you. Just being with people, uh, I don't think uh, it necessarily by itself under that condition makes people happy. On the other hand, she was critical of the whole movement of, uh, of uh, meditation and self-actualization, uh, that has taken over uh, so much of the field of pop psychology. Uh, you know, if you can't be loved, you love yourself. To me, is a, a crazy statement. If you weren't loved, how do you know what love is? Uh, and, and so the ability to love others and the ability to respect oneself and maybe love oneself requires at times that you're with and embedded in family and friends and the larger society. Uh, over the years, I began, we became aware we never talked about politics. And I don't mean any particular candidate when I work with people. But uh, in my classroom, I tried to avoid taking sides between Republicans and Democrats uh, I think it came clear, but what I would say to my students as well as everybody, you're a citizen of your country. You have to vote. So I put voting as an indication of mental health. Now, of course, what does it have to do with health? It's a moral statement I'm making. 
You're a good person if you vote, and not as good a person if you don't vote. The ability to understand oneself or others without judgments, which is really the hallmark of, of what therapy is when it's really a good therapy. It starts off with that stupid diagnosis that we make, which is not a medical judgment, but a moral judgment that says there's something wrong with you as a human being, uh, and then becomes the basis of language. I'm a schizophrenic, I'm a depressive, I'm mentally retarded, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, uh, all of which uh, add to the, to the, to the, uh, the, 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 the suitcase full of labels that so many people describe themselves with, I'm stupid, uh, I shouldn't be born, uh, there's something really wrong with me, uh, nobody could ever love me, all of the self-hatred and rage that goes out to other people with the judgments of them that really prevent, from my perception, any kind of joy or any kind of individual creativity. Because if you hate others or you fear others, it's very hard to actualize and put into words or put into practice anything that's individual of yours. And so I think of mental health as being able to manage attention. Attention, not attention. Tension, T-E-N-S-I-O-N. Between being a part of others uh, I love the idea that my wife and I are an us. It's a we. But she's also her, and I'm also me. And there are conflicts, like in all relationships. Um, I'm going to play golf. I played golf today, and I had a wonderful round. It was so cool. It was so wonderful for the first time in, in six months. Um, just was energizing, was terrific. And I'll play Wednesday morning. But if I want to play Friday a third time, which I probably wouldn't because my body is starting to hurt me, but if I did, she would not be happy about it because she likes for us to spend a Friday together and shop or do all kinds of things uh, that we wouldn't do on other days. And so um, we have to work that out. And hopefully we work it out where the uh, I either play golf or don't play golf, or she does something and I don't do that something. But hopefully we work it out so that when it's over, they're still in us. Okay? I worked with married couples in which one swallowed the other. There was an us, but there was no one of the partners didn't have an I. Right? They did thought and and uh, I know a couple now, her opinion is only her husband's. There's no other opinion. And boy, you should see how he takes after her if she dares to question his authority. And I've seen that over and over and over again, where it's an authoritarian relationship in which it's all about us, which is really all about him or all about her, depending on which particular relationship. And there really is no I and you in addition to the we or the us. So that's mental health for me, that one is a good citizen 
And a being a good citizen, by the way, does not mean that when the president or somebody makes some outrageous, dangerous statement that we don't criticize. If you love your children, you criticize them. Hopefully you do it in a way that doesn't break their spirit or break their bones. Uh, but, but you do criticize those you love. You do try to change the behavior you find either offensive or uh, dangerous in, to somebody, including themselves. So there's that tension that has to be maintained, that there is a, uh, a desire to uh, grow, and I mean intellectually and in skills. One of the things that I began to talk about many years ago are the skills that a person needs to achieve the dreams that they have when they try to actualize. Uh, I, I once defined creativity as bringing something into the world that only you can bring into the world, but that benefits, pleases, and makes others happy. Makes you happy, makes them happy. So that it deals on that edge of tension between what I want to do or say or write or paint uh, and what uh, uh, would please you, what would not hurt you. It's a balancing game. And so, therefore, mental health really is uh, moral judgments. I think it is morally judged good to be a citizen. I think it is morally good to go to school and learn skills. Because on a descriptive level, it transforms an individual to one with insight. That was Freud and psychoanalysis's great idea to have insight, meaning what? To be able to see yourself as you grow and change from perspectives other than the ones you got from your family or your religion or that you had, had taken on uh, out of fear of something, whether it was others or something about yourself, uh, and that you were locked at one place. Uh, I considered somebody becoming mentally healthy when they went for a GED when they didn't necessarily have to go to college, but began to take courses that interested them. Um, when they went to become, learn to become a chef, and they learned the skill at the hands of real chefs who were really uh, 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 successful in their own profession. So this does not in any way exhaust the idea of mental illness or mental health, but I believe that psychotherapy should not only be geared to helping people reduce the unwanted behaviors that plague them and others, but bring an understanding of those behaviors so that they can be transformed in such a way that the individual can grow, can find joy, find a satisfying life, find genuine love, with others, be sexually satisfied if that is their desire in a way that is morally good for them, 
psychologically satisfying and for the people with whom they love and share a sexual experience. We can move this into any area of life. So, think about, if you're hearing this show, are you mentally healthy? And of course, that has nothing to do with your physical health, although, sure as heck, Anybody who is is uh, physically ill, uh, and I met people who have been physically ill and maintained an optimistic, bright, uh, cheerful outlook that was genuine. I always admired and marveled at such individuals. Uh, but uh, are you healthy? Or if you called me up, what would be your dimension of health? Because it has nothing to do with medical, it's basically moral, but it has to be described. Not just, boy, I'm the healthiest person in the world. I am just healthy. I'm spectacular. All right, I think I've done it. I think I've said what I wanted to say. Now I have a decision to make. I went to the store before and I got stuff for supper and I decided not to buy my ice cream. And now I'm sitting here at 10 after 8 and I say, oh, why did I do that? So, am I going to get into my car and go over to Publix and buy some ice cream? I don't know. Anybody hearing me? Anybody want to call in? Would it be mentally healthy for me to go have ice cream? Hmm. Or am I mentally ill for buying ice cream? <laughs> At my age, I no longer worry about becoming physically ill from the ice cream. Uh, I think it's all crap that'll clog my arteries. And I think it's very little to do with that. But that's another story for another night. Okay, I think I'm done. Again, I went over a half hour, and I don't like to do that. And let me just send this out. Okay.